A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Here's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, just as a moment of personal privilege, uh, my grandson was born yesterday, on Friday, and I'm very excited. So, so Josh and Mel gave birth to, or Mel gave birth to Owen, and uh, we've gotten to hold him. It's lovely, but we're grateful. So our message this morning, our title is, And That Has Made All the Difference. Now some of you may recognize that line from a poem, The Road Not Taken, by Robert Frost, and perhaps you could fill in the penultimate line, which was, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We won't be interpreting Frost today, but I'm sure that would be a lovely exercise. But I would like us to consider that that final line, um, because when we get to the end of our lives, if we were to say, what has made all the difference, what would we say? When we consider what gave meaning and purpose to our lives, what made us a success or a failure, What motivated us toward godliness or not, how would we fill in the blank? So if you were to reflect this afternoon and you said, and blank made all the difference, how would you you fill in your story? I did an exercise this week um, for a class I'm taking, and the exercise was write the story of your life in six words. Interesting exercise, the story of your life in six words, and um, if you're curious, mine was loving God, family, church, um, exhausting, rewarding. <laughs> but if you, at the end of your life, were to come up with, with telling your story, and what made all the difference, and you said blank has made all the difference, what would it be? Would it be... You came from a good home, you got a good education, you worked hard, you had thick skin, you loved others, you were nice or kind. Or maybe we'd answer the question like, what, what did you value in your life? Or what, what helped you have influence? Was it, did you, did you pursue financial success or influence or man's praise? Or maybe we could ask it a third way, what would you boast about in that moment. What has made all the difference? So 
Uh, we're still near the beginning of our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're calling Being God's People. And this is, uh, this is the first letter of Paul uh, to the church at Corinth. And Daniel introduced the series last week. So if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to last week's sermon sometime this week. Uh, Daniel also put out a blog post kind of introducing us to the book and recommending some resources. But we're in this series in Corinthians and uh, Paul is still kind of setting the table for what's going to be significant for them to understand before he brings all the rest of the content from the book. He's still kind of in introductory matters here. Uh, last week we learned they, there were some divisions among them. Paul is beginning to bring up some of their issues. And uh, one of the things that popped up last week, which will impact our message today, is that some of the folks in Corinth really, uh, they really uh, looked for and were influenced by eloquent wisdom and powerful rhetoric, which Paul says he's not going to do for them. And he gives them a reason for that. But for our text today, I think Paul's going to challenge us to consider what really makes the difference in our lives. He'll contrast, on one hand, the wisdom of the world, and on another hand, this wisdom or power from God. So we'll explore the passage through three points today. Only three. The message that makes the difference, number one. The calling that makes the difference, Number two, and the boasting that displays the difference, point number three. So the message that makes the difference, the calling that makes the difference, and the boasting that displays the difference. But before we jump in, let's pray again. Lord, your word says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So again, this morning, we pause to give you thanks. Lord, I give you thanks for the birth of my grandson, Owen. We give you thanks for our church and the opportunities we have to hear the word of God taught, to respond to it, to grow in faith and obedience. We ask, Lord, that there would be much spiritual fruit born through the women's Bible studies that are going on right now through the book of James. We pray for spiritual unity for this year as we have heard Paul's warnings about divisions in the church. We just pray that you would continue granting to us great unity, of unity of purpose, unity of faith, unity of um, belief, unity in our relationships. Lord, I ask for a real spiritual hunger and humility as we read and study the book of 1 Corinthians today and over the next few months. Lord, would you grant us your grace to apply these truths to our lives and to this church? We pray that we would not be lacking in any spiritual gift as we await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we give you thanks this morning that you are a faithful God who will sustain us to the end through many trials and temptations by the help of Jesus, our great high priest, who has come before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, point number one, the message that makes the difference. Now, as I mentioned, there were already, we've already kind of gotten an idea that there were, there were lots of philosophers or teachers or powerful speakers in Corinth. It was kind of a metropolitan area, and they loved talking about philosophical things. Back up to verse 17 in, in chapter 1, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul's going to go to great lengths to kind of contrast uh, the message and the wisdom that the Corinthians would have had uh, in their own culture versus what he's going to teach. But let me just say right off the bat here, he's not arguing for boring sermons. That's not his point in saying, I refuse to use words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of his power. He's not saying, I'm going to be as boring as possible, so Lord help us as preachers uh, not to be boring. But 
but he is saying the power of the message needs to come from somewhere else, not from the eloquence of the speaker. So he uses the word wisdom to portray this idea, this words of eloquent wisdom. Now I counted at least six or seven times in the text where Paul is going to use this word wisdom and he's actually not talking about the wisdom which we should actually pursue. He's talking about worldly or earthly wisdom that is folly to God. So don't be confused um, in our passage as if God is saying we shouldn't pursue wisdom because that's not the case at all. Paul's rather pointing out the limitations of worldly philosophy. In verse 19, Paul alludes to Isaiah 29, 14, which says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So Paul's talking about this wisdom um, of the world here, that he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning he's going to thwart. So, so pay attention to this first half of uh, verse 21 in our passage. It's, it's profound, but quite easy to skip. So this is, this is what kind of one of the nuggets in our passage. Look in verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Slow that down. So in the wisdom of God, so in God's plan, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's an interesting statement, especially when you, when you kind of layer that over all the commands in the book of Proverbs, say, for pursuing wisdom. But God, God says here, in God's wisdom, he made the world, he made the universe in such a way that you can't get to God Simply through wisdom, through philosophy, through knowledge, through science, through logic. You can't get to God in those ways. And this should, this should humble us. This puts our intellect and our insight in its proper place. So we should seek to be wise and understanding and use logic. But none of those things in and of themselves can bring us to God. Now, this is helpful to remember in our pursuit of evangelism or our pursuit of apologetics, that, that understanding and wisdom and logic and those things by themselves cannot bring us to God. We can't truly know God unless he reveals himself to us. This is, this is why the gospel message and the scriptures are so important, because biblical wisdom... We're going to contrast worldly wisdom, biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom begins with the fear of God. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the result of wisdom. You don't have this exercise in wisdom and come up with the fear of the Lord. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, Paul brings in an, another insufficient means of knowing and obeying God in verse 22. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So again, we have the Greeks seeking wisdom and now we've added the Jews were seeking signs. So the Jews in Jesus' day were regularly asking for Jesus to prove who he was by doing some miraculous sign to confirm his message. And at some points, Jesus did signs, and those certainly did get people's attention. But usually when people demanded a sign of Jesus, he, he refused. But in both of these places, the, the Greeks with wisdom and the Jews with seeking signs, in some ways, they're putting themselves in the wrong position. See, they're, they're judging Paul's message based on their criteria, whether that's signs or wisdom. So we're not, we're not to be in the place where we are the judge or critic on, on, on judging God himself. And in our own day, um, the types of criticism that, that 
or demands may have changed. So we don't just say signs or wisdom. But many of the postures of unbelievers today, uh, you know, we might say something like, oh, I demand to be satisfied by the scientific method or by some new philosophical system or by a certain religious feeling or experience or by a social media poll to determine what's true. Now, we're not in the place to judge God. He is, he is judge over our wisdom. So, so this message, uh, so, so what, do we, what is the important message that we need? Well, Paul tells us in verse 18, the word of the cross. So in contrast to the Greeks seeking wisdom or the Jews seeking a sign, Paul offers something entirely different. In verse 22 and 23, it says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He says it slightly differently in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what is this word of the cross or what is this message of Christ crucified that Paul is talking about. Well, much later in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, Paul tells us what he means by gospel. I'm sure we'll refer to this particular passage many times through our series, but in chapter 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the dead, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And if we go outside Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we could read this in Colossians chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Or perhaps from our passage from a couple of weeks ago when Phil preached, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So to say this a little differently, the message that makes all the difference is not one of philosophy or of a promise of religious ceremony or miracle. It's a spirit-inspired interpretation of actual historical events. So Paul's message, don't miss this. So, so the Greeks seek wisdom, philosophy. The Jews were seeking a sign. What Paul gives them is this is what happened in history and this is what it means. God sent his own son into human form to be born of a virgin, Mary. He lived a sinless and righteous life. He died a shameful criminal's death to pay the penalty for sins of those who put their faith and trust in him. So this isn't just philosophy. It's rooted in History. It's rooted in what actually happened in the past. And this message of what actually happened in the past is a message that has power. It has the power to change, unlike any other message that we could imagine. These are historical events. They're not mere metaphors of how to be made right with God. We're not putting our faith in an idea, but in the very concrete actions of the Son of God in history. Now this message was offensive to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. But it's the only message that can save. It's the only message that can deliver us from our biggest problem, the penalty of our sins, eternal punishment. So this word of the cross or preaching Christ crucified. This, this is the message that matters. Now next week in our passage, we'll, we'll see that, that Paul, Benjamin will be preaching, that Paul like, brings the word of the cross into, into everything. Right? 
everything that he teaches. But, but for now, this word of the cross, this message of what Jesus did in history for us that we can put our faith in. Now, Paul gives us some clues here. What should we expect when we share this message? There's a stark reality in our passage about what happens with this message, right? We saw it in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So on one hand, somebody hears the message and they say, that is ridiculous. And on the other hand, somebody hears the message and say, that is life-changing. The same message. What should we expect with this message? This message divides humanity into two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So we could translate the two groups as those who are on their way to destruction and those who are on their way to salvation. Now we're, we're more familiar with talking about I was saved then I am being saved, or I will be saved. But the Bible uses all three of those when it talks about our salvation. You were saved, you are being saved, and you finally will be saved one day. And Paul is emphasizing here this, this process that they're in, this journey that they're in, they're on their way to being saved. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, just thinking about dividing the world into groups of people. Here's what one commentator says. The ancient world deployed various polarities for describing humanity. Romans and barbarians, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. But Paul here sets forth the only polarity that is of ultimate importance. He distinguishes between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The dividing line between these two groups is the message of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, it's interesting that in verse 18, the opposite of folly is not wisdom. Did you notice that? The opposite of folly is the power of God. And a couple of times, Paul refers to the word of the cross as the power of God. We see this in 18 and also in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So where is this power for change? Where do we look for the power that makes the difference? The Corinthians, it seems, looked to a powerful, persuasive uh, speaker that moved them. Now we may not put it in those words for where we expect change today. We might depend on more better marketing, a better multimedia experience. Perhaps we think the real power to affect and impact people comes from science or psychology or psychiatry or some think tank. But Paul says the power that we need comes from the message of the gospel, which is the interpretation of these historical events that actually happen in history that can make all the difference for us. So, where is the real power? Verse 21 says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. But then he says, But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, the good, good old authorized version, King James you know, the folly of preaching, as if there's folly in the exercise of communication itself. And uh, perhaps there is some folly involved in that as well. But, but I think Paul's point here is, like, it's the folly of the, what seems folly to the world is the message of the cross. But did you see God was pleased to do it this way? God was pleased to make the universe in such a way that the power of God for salvation, for righteousness, sanctification, and redemption comes through the message of the cross. And when we hear message of the cross, we automatically think 
oh yeah, it's that Christian thing, what Jesus did for his people. But just remember how shocking that language really ought to be for us. The cross was a symbol of capital punishment. It was a symbol of this was a death that you shouldn't even speak about in polite company. And Paul is saying this is the message that changes everything. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So if that's the case, what is the message of Christ crucified? If it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, who is left? All right, so let's just, let's take humanity here. So we've got, we got the Gentiles and we've got the Jews, the two groups that divided all humanity at the time. And the message of the cross is folly to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. So who is left? No one is left. So we have a problem because the message is folly to the Gentiles, stumbling block to the Jews, and yet this is the only message that has the power to save. So not only do we need the message that makes all the difference, we actually need the calling that makes the difference. Point two. Now our text gives two descriptions um, of those that the word of God, the word of the cross helps. We see the first one in verse 21, uh, that this effective salvation comes to those who believe. Look in verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. To save those who believe. So, so who is saved by the message of the cross? Those who believe. It's not enough to just hear the gospel message, you must believe it. It's not enough to just own a Bible and know what's in it. You must believe it. It's not enough to merely be inspired by the works or teachings of Jesus. You must put your faith in Him. It's not enough to be born into a Christian family. You must actually believe the gospel. It's not enough to be baptized because that baptism without Faith means nothing. It's not enough to try to obey God's commandments. Many have tried. You must believe in the message of the cross. You must put your faith in the one who gave his life on the cross for you. It is the only way. But saying that those who believe are saved doesn't quite go far enough to describe what has made all the difference? All right, we already said the message of the cross is folly to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to Jews. So we say you must believe it. But what makes the difference? How do you get from that folly and stumbling block to belief? Well, verses 23 and 24 help us. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we've, we know the message that makes the difference, but there's also a calling that makes the difference. The, the thing that makes the difference for these Jews and these Greeks is that they have been called by God and therefore Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God. So there are two ways in our text to describe the same group of people. One is those who believe, and the other is those who have been called. Paul's argument here is that Jews and Gentiles reject the cross, so who is left? That covers everybody. The message that makes the difference must be combined with the calling that makes the difference. Verse 24, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. So remember that, that Paul is speaking of calling in two different ways, or we speak of calling in two different ways. We might say um, there's a general call whenever we speak or share the message of the cross with someone, the gospel, there, that is a call. That is a general call to believe the gospel. But as we know from Jesus' parable of the soils, say in Mark chapter 4, many will hear that word and do not receive it or bear fruit. So there's another call. 
that goes beyond the simple presentation of the message of the gospel. And this call is effective. It is effectual. It is, if I can use this word, irresistible. Because through this call, through this call God accomplishes, not just offers his salvation. Classic text for this would be Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is telling the Corinthians. He's telling this to them, not just to give them insight into like the workings of salvation in the heavenly realms. Like how does God accomplish redemption? He's actually telling them this because Paul believed that the Corinthians needed to be humbled. They needed to be sufficiently humbled and yet sufficiently confident in their own calling. So Paul's not just trying to be eloquent here about salvation to say, look, you've got to believe, but the way you believe is you've got to be called by God. He's saying, no, look, you need to understand something about yourself to understand salvation correctly, and you need to understand um, what God is trying to accomplish. So look at verse 26 with me. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now here, the way Paul's using the word calling, like what station in life were you in when God called you? Right? He's reminding them who were they before God saved them. Please, don't read this without the M, right? Don't read it without the M. In verse 26, not any of you were wise. It doesn't say that. It says, not many of you were wise. In other words, Paul's point here is not that the gospel can't work to save someone who is wise according to worldly standards, or is wealthy, or is powerful, or is influential. In fact, we already saw last week, as we kind of went through who are some of the people at the church in Corinth, there are some influential, powerful, prestigious, ruling people in the church at Corinth. But Paul's saying that's, that, that's not why God called them. That's not why. It's not... Paul's point isn't that God can't save kings or the rich or the well-educated. His point is that he doesn't call them because of those things. Our inclusion in the people of God is not a stamp that says you were worthy, but a stamp that says saved by grace alone. So Paul did want the people in Corinth to stop elevating certain people's giftings that cause divisions in the body. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. He's, he's trying to keep them from elevating certain people or certain gifts within the church, as we'll see. We have the same issue today in the church, don't we? We, we gravitate towards powerful, influential preachers or high-profile sports personalities who are Christians or the evangelical political figure that we think could get a lot accomplished for the gospel. And Paul's saying, look, those, are not, those, aren't, those aren't the people that matter in my kingdom. Not many wise, not many wise, not many of noble birth, not many powerful. God chose the foolish. So this is an invitation for us to ask, why me? Why me? Why did God save Does your answer include all of the ways that you deserved salvation more than the next guy? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. 
Why me? Does your answer include all of the awesome gifts that you have that God could use? It's a good thing that God saved me because I can blank. Or because I'm good at blank. No. No, friend, all of us, all of us have been included because God wanted to display his mercy. It's just a good exercise to, every now and then, just think back to what would I have been apart from Christ? Now, some of you lived in the world into your adult years as an unsaved person, and you experienced a lot of the things that God has since rescued you from. Some of you were saved as a young child and have experienced the mercy and grace of God in ways that protected you from so many of those things. But it's just good to to think, why me? It's not because of things I did or didn't do. It's because God wanted to display his mercy through us. This is how it has always been with the people of God. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord is reminding the Israelites who they were. It says, the Lord your God has chosen for you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's not because God looked down and said, "Ah, you are so awesome. You were so awesome that I'm going to save you. God, no, God put his mercy on us. So, so far we've seen that two things are required to make all the difference in our lives. The difference between heaven and hell, life and death, true wisdom and folly. We need, number one, the word of the cross. And we need the calling of God on our life that brings faith. So now let's turn to the purpose and evidence of those two realities. And that is number three, the boasting that displays the difference. So why did God orchestrate the universe in this way that this is how people are saved? Why not save the wealthy, the wise, or the noble? Well, God gives us two reasons in his text. The first is in verse 21. It pleased God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Don't just skip over that as if it's unimportant. It pleases God. Now we we so easily slip into living as if our desires and our wants should be the center of the universe. This is the genesis of so many sins in our lives and so many ways that we sin against others because we live as if our desires or what pleases us should be what pleases everyone. We often function as the center of our own universe, but but God actually is the center of the universe. And God should be the center of our universe. And so when we see something like, it pleases God that through the folly of what we preach that he would save those who believe, that should should motivate us, that this is a good, high aim. Doing what pleases God is one of the highest goods. It should be our highest goal. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So just, just take that. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. And then think back to our passage. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God to save us in this way. That, that pleasure of God is centered on his son, Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Matthew 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So the first reason that God made the world in such a way that the way people are saved is by the mercy of God through the message of the cross because it pleases him. But the second reason we find in verse 28, there are two, there are two so that phrases in our text. I hope that whenever you're doing your Bible reading or your Bible study, you come across so that, like God's just, he's just throwing you some, say, hey, this is, this is a purpose statement for why I do what I do. So let's not miss it here in verse 28. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So why does God save us in this way? Well, because it pleases him, but also so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is one of the overarching messages of the Bible, that God has accomplished salvation in such a way that he gets all the glory. All of it. No single human being will be able to say on judgment day, yep, God was right to save me. I deserved it. No human being will be able to say, say that. Go all the way back to Adam, who was probably more, more, Adam and Eve would have been more amazing than we can imagine in their beauty and splendor before they were corrupted by sin. And yet, they will stand before the judgment seat and say, I didn't deserve God's salvation and redemption. The most holy person that you know or have ever met or will ever meet when they stand before God will not be able to say, yep, I deserved this. And this is one of the reasons why the word of the cross is such a stumbling block and such folly. This chafes against our pride. You see, we want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We want to contribute to our own salvation. We don't want to completely depend on the goodness and worth of another. We don't want to acknowledge that we are weak and helpless and undeserving. This chafes against our pride. But it's the only way. It is the only way that God makes salvation available to us. It is only by depending wholly and fully on the goodness and worth of another. This was already read this morning from the prophecy mic. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works that no one may boast. So on one hand, Paul tells them, like, God is doing this so that no one can boast. Right? Saw that, verse 29, so that no human being might boast. And yet, he actually tells us to boast a little later on. Look in verse 30. And because of him you were in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So just in case we were thinking that we had something to do with our salvation, he makes it crystal clear in verse 30, because of him you are in Christ. Okay, so the literal, from him you are in Christ. So why are you in Christ? Because you did the right thing, said the right thing? No, it's from God. It is from God. Because of him you are in Christ in all the benefits that come from being in Christ, which he lists out here, the, the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, all the things that come to us through union in Christ come because of him, not because of us. And here it's interesting that I think Paul actually redefines wisdom for the Corinthians so that it orients them for the rest of the book and what he's going to tell them. So he says... Uh, he says in verse 30 that Jesus who became 
to us wisdom from God. Jesus became to us wisdom from God. So he's redefining what they thought of as wisdom. Now he's saying, no, this is wisdom. What Jesus is for us is wisdom. And he gives three descriptions of that. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, this right living, just living, righteous behavior before God. Sanctification, being set apart, not as common, but for God's purpose. And redemption, you were sold into slavery because of your sin, but you've been bought out of that to belong to Christ. This is what wisdom means to us in Christ. Wisdom is not fundamentally eloquent rhetoric or impeccable logic or a fully formed worldview. Wisdom from God is the the person of Jesus. He is the wisdom that we need. So he tells them, no human being may boast. Then he says, boast in the Lord. So one of the practical ways that we glorify God is by the nature of our boasting. When we tell our story, so remember I had a six-word story of my life I had to do, and then I had to explain it. When we tell our story, who is at the center of our story? To what do we attribute our successes? Is it to our heritage or our hard work or our wisdom? Or do we fight against that and boast as Paul wants us to boast? Do we consistently and purposefully Bring attention to the mercy and grace of God in our lives. I wonder if Paul had Jeremiah 9, 23 in his mind as he penned verse 31. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So, in what do we boast? So as we think about how to apply this, the message of the cross is still polarizing today, isn't it? But it's the only message that has the power to save. It is the only message. So whether it's for ourselves or those that we love, there is no other message under heaven whereby men can be saved. This should impact how we respond. So if you are not yet a Christian, this is my appeal to you. Believe on the word of the cross. This isn't a religious philosophy. This is looking back in history to what the God-man Jesus Christ did on your behalf to rescue you from the punishment you deserve. Put your trust in the Savior who left heaven and came to earth, entered history to live and to die and to be raised again from the dead for you. Seek the Lord While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Or we need to call like the Corinthians did, call upon the Lord. This is chapter 1, verse 2. To the church at Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So if you're not yet a believer, call upon the name of the Lord. And if you are a Christian, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Let your boasting display that you have embraced the message that makes all the difference and you've embraced the calling that makes all the difference. Boast in what God has done in your life. Tell of God's works in your life. Sing about God's abundant mercies. Proclaim the goodness and loving kindness of God. Make God the center of your story. Tell your children. Tell your neighbor. Invite them to believe this message. And when you get to the end, Show that that has made 
all the difference. It won't be merely that you took the road less traveled by or that you were more religious or more successful. May we, at the end of our lives, say that the message that we heard and that the calling we received made all the difference. Let's stand and pray. Merciful and gracious Father, the Father who sent His only Son to a corrupted world, infected and affected by sin. Merciful Father who sent Your only Son to suffer at the hands of wicked men. To endure unspeakable, shameful punishment as an innocent man. Thank you for sending your son to enter into our world that we might believe and be saved. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would open our eyes to what Christ has truly done for us whether we've been saved for two weeks or 40 years, that we'd be freshly reminded that we did not receive this because we deserved it, but because of your great mercy. And Lord, I pray over the next days and weeks and years that you would teach us and train us to boast in the Lord, that we would brag on your goodness and your mercies, that you wouldn't, that our eyes would not be drawn to our deeds, our righteousness, but to your deeds and your righteousness that save. Lord, thank you for a message that is powerful, that is not impotent, a, a message that actually can bring about real change in people's lives and has for hundreds of years. Would you work through your Holy Spirit to bring about that change in lives today? In Jesus' name.